Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. The number of couples seeking fertility treatment is rising every year. But donor-assisted conception raises huge ethical and human rights issues. Up until 10 years ago in the UK, sperm donors and women who donated eggs had a right to remain anonymous. And then the law was changed, giving donor-conceived people the right to information about their donors. Most people agree that this was a milestone to be celebrated. But does it go far enough? This podcast explores the issues. It's drawn from an event organised by the Progress Educational Trust and is introduced by the chair of the event, Charles Lister. I was looking back at Melanie Johnson's um, announcement in 2004 when she announced at the HFEA conference the decision to amend the, the law. Melanie Johnson, as you may recall, was the minister at the time. She posed this question, which I think is very relevant for tonight. Clinics decide to provide treatment using donors. Patients make a decision to receive treatment using donors. Donors decide to donate. Donor-conceived children, however, do not decide to be born. Is it therefore right that access to information about the donation that led to their birth should be denied to them? And as we know, she concluded that absolutely it should not be denied and went on to say, we are taking this step in the interests of the children involved and their rights are the prime consideration. So this was, this was truly a landmark decision, but the fact remains that not all donor-conceived children born today have the same access to information about their donors. Much still depends on the choices made by the parents and would-be parents donor-conceived children. Many parents choose to tell, and there's excellent information available from both the HFDA and donor-conceived network, as well as counselling in clinics to support parents in telling their children about their donor-conceived status. However, some children are conceived still with anonymous donors. There are some people who still seek an anonymous donor and may go overseas to, to find one. There are still people making informal arrangements for donor conception in the unregulated area, so the amount of information those children born of those arrangements might have is, is, is you know, can vary hugely. And some are still as we know, not told at all by their parents that they're donor conceived. And as mentioned, uh, those conceived using licensed UK claims before 2005 have no formal access to information. So the key question for tonight is whether more can, should be done through either better communication, persuasion, counselling, or even, perhaps more controversially, changes to law or practice in clinics to set the balance more towards the needs of donor-conceived children. Or, and it would be interesting to think, I mean, some of you may feel that things are fine as they stand, we just need to let things play out for the next eight years until the first 
child born after 2005 is entitled to receive information. So it would be good to get a full range of debate on those issues this evening. The first speaker was Juliet Tizard, Director of Strategy and Corporate Affairs at the HFEA. That's the UK's Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority. Thank you very much for inviting me to kick off this panel discussion this evening. I'm here to set the scene a little bit for our discussions this evening about um, how the kind of donation world sector has developed over the last 10 years since the removal of, don removal of donor anonymity. And so for a regulator like us, our job was to implement the new reg uh, regulations that were passed by Parliament in 2004, and that meant issuing guidance to clinics, setting up the systems to collect different additional information from clinics providing treatment and making sure that we had the systems in place to deal with requests for information from our register of treatments uh, when people got to the age of 16 or 18. And because donors can retrospectively remove their anonymity by, by um, themselves, people are coming of age in relation to identifiable donors soon. So... What has the removal of anonymity done to donation in licensed clinics in the UK? Well, it's always difficult to understand the impact of one particular change to the law on a dynamic sector that involves human beings. Lots has happened in 10 years. There have been, besides changes to the law, there have been changes to the compensation of donors, there's been an economic downturn, there's been the development of overseas treatment. Lots of things have changed. So it's always hard to put your finger on exactly what causes what. But I think it's clear to say that some of the predictions at the time were that the donation, that the, uh, the willingness of men and women to donate their eggs and sperm would go through the floor, the removal of anonymity. And you can see from this chart, this is sperm donors, that that hasn't happened. The numbers have gradually crept up over the last 10 years. It's worth remembering um, that... These are newly registering donors in each particular six-month interval. They give an indication of the numbers of people coming forward for treatment. We only collect information about donors from clinics when the, embryo, um, the eggs or sperm are ready for use in treatment. So these aren't people rocking up at a clinic. These are people coming through who are ready to have their eggs and sperm used in treatment. It's worth remembering a third of the sperm that's available for treatment in the UK is imported from overseas. Not primarily from Denmark, as you might believe from reading the newspaper, but primarily from the United States. The second uh, largest importer of sperm into the UK is, in fact, Denmark. So there's something to understand there about how the um, um, sperm donation works in the UK in relation to home-recruited donors and overseas-recruited donors. Important to say, though, that the rules are exactly the same for those, for, for those imported samples. This is egg donors um, split into those who share their eggs, so patient donors and those who aren't patients who donate their eggs and aren't having treatment, treatment themselves. Um, I won't dwell on the, the trends that are happening in those, those two different types of, of donors. We can come back to that if you want. But again, a gradual growth of registrations of egg donors over the past 10 years. Now, new donor registrations aren't the perfect measure of um, how active or buoyant or how lively um, a particular sperm donation or egg donation is. A good measure, though, is treatment. How much treatment is taking place with the people who are um, using those eggs, sperm, or sometimes eggs and sperm together um, in treatment. And you can see here also that um, that is gradually following the trend of fertility treatment in general, 
which has grown year on year over the last 10 years. And in 2012, which is the last data we have that records the birth outcomes well, uh, 2,250 babies were born as a result of licensed donor conception in the UK. So that's the beginning of the process. It's by no means the end. Donation is a lifelong process for the donors as well as the families that are hopefully created as a result of this treatment, the parents and the donor-conceived children um, and adults. And removing anonymity means that those people born from licensed treatment can ac get access to additional information from those who were born before 2005. And one of our most important jobs at the HFEA is to maintain a record of all those do uh, of the donors and the donor conception treatments that happened as a result of that donation, the children that were born, the connections that exist between children born to different families from the same donor. Remember that donation, uh, don donated gametes can be used in more than one recipient couple or individual. So we have a system at the HFEA, a service where people can come to us and ask for information according to quite complex and differential kind of rights that are set out in the legislation and HFEA policy about what information they are allowed to access. When they come to us, they may be very clear about what they're interested in and very resolved about the, um, the information and the, and the kind of feelings and thoughts that that might throw up. Some of them aren't. And so we have a service that helps talk people through um, what to expect, when to expect it, and that they might get information they weren't expecting as well. So just a quick note on the um, numbers here. As you can see, they're gradually growing. The requests for information from parents, from donors and from donor-conceived people. And um, out of those donor-conceived people, there have been six that have made a request where their donor has, since their parents had their treatment, removed their anonymity. So those people came forward thinking that their donor was anonymous and, um, un and receiving information that their donor had become identifiable. And we support people where they need help if they want intermediary support, if they decide to, to go ahead and get the identifying information about that donor and possibly meet them too. So for us, that hopefully gives you a snapshot of how donation has changed over the last 10 years and what kind of systems and processes are in place to support people. And one final word from a donor-conceived person who told us that they found our service very valuable and we hope that it will be valuable to more people in the future. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Joanna Rose. Jo is a donor-conceived person. Uh, she was also uh, a claimant in Rose and another versus Secretary of State and the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which was a case brought in 2002, I think, which contributed to the decision to end donor anonymity. Undercover I've got seven minutes. For so I don't know where to begin. Seven minutes. First, I want to present a song about the pain of not knowing your genetic parent. Because the sacred cow of this industry 
is the pain of infertility. And nobody argues that infertility is painful. The inability to have your own genetic child is painful. But if you say the inability to have your own genetic parents painful, watch out, they're coming for you. So this guy did an amazing song. Gives you an idea of what I'm talking about. The kind of pain that has been created for donor offspring who don't know half their genetic family or more as a result of policy and practice. The next picture is Narelle Guiche, one of my best friends. She's a donor offspring who campaigned with me in Australia for years. I knew her. She, she started campaigning when she was 15. And she put that on her Facebook and put, love this woman. Sometime later, she had problems with what they thought was irritable bowel syndrome. Eventually, after years of being told it's irritable bowel syndrome, they found stage four stomach cancer. She had spent 15 years trying to find her genetic father and the government of Victoria had some form of empathy and they eventually found her father six weeks before she died. He was there at hospital with her, singing to her and playing the guitar. And he loves her with a passion that nobody would touch. If you know Maltese people, and she's Maltese, the relationship they developed in six weeks is insane. It's beautiful. I just need to address an issue about the HFEA, the Department of Health, with respect to Juliet Tizard. I had no support when I brought my court case, and I believe my court case was the reason why anonymity was brought to an end. It was nothing to do with the Department of Health thinking it was the right time or the right place. They fought me for seven years. They took the whole of my inheritance money to do that court case, and they fought me all the way the Department of Health and the HFEA said, quote, unquote, through their QC, information about my genetic father was requiring information about an irrelevant third party. I'll never forget that. So I just want you to know, from my perspective, wolf in sheep's clothing, HFEA, Department of Health, the whole shebang is not really for the best interest of the child. We don't have this on our birth certificates. A fundamental principle of any ethics that has any sense is truth. We don't have it on our birth certificates. I went to register my kids for their birth and it said, fraudulent information will result in blah, 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 criminal action. It's legal to put fraudulent information on our birth certificates and people will die because they've got the wrong medical history and people will argue that that's in the best interest of the child. Everybody needs to wake up who's on our side. Artificial reproductive technologies need to change from adult to child-centric practices with normative standards. Normally, you say, when you have a baby, the mother matters. In the womb, they talk to the baby, the mother matters. 
In reproductive technology, who's to say? Normally, when you talk about a child and knowing their father, it matters. In reproductive technology, the jury's out. The experiment's on us. We need multidisciplinary protections to counter the conflict of interest from infertility industry and its users. Basically, in the UK, the HFEA, the whole lot, is governed both by the fertility industry and the users. The donors and the donor offspring, I've applied to be on the HFEA and I wasn't allowed. I didn't make a good team player, quote, unquote. There are no donor offspring on the HFEA. And how can you have the balanced discussion and debate or protection of the best interests of the child when the whole thing is controlled by the industry and the industry users? In adoption, you have an adoption triangle. You have birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees. It's commonly recognised. You represent them all. In our case, we're not re represented. Donors and donor offspring are not represented in governance. What I was going to ask for after the song was one minute silence because we need an apology. We need recognition and services to help address the problems for the donor offspring. I don't believe the link-up service would be available if it wasn't for the court case. I'm not saying whoopee me. I'm just saying it wouldn't have happened. The Department of Health and the HFEA didn't care. And it was me who said, what about a gene library to my QC? They said, what are you talking about? How do you explain to him what a gene library was? It wouldn't have happened. There's no... It's like the industry carries on. They make a batch, and maybe they make a mistake. Whoops, let's make another batch. There's no accountability. There's no money put aside to help those people. We're reduced to two and a half hours to talk about what's happened so far. And of that, I've got seven minutes, and I'm the only donor offspring here. You know, I'm really grateful for that opportunity, but it's crumbs in the desert. I wanted to ask for one minute of silence and acknowledgement for people like Narelle, of people like Kevin, who live for the rest of their life, tortured by not knowing who their genetic family is. Fine, some donor offspring won't care. But some people are infertile, and it doesn't really bother them that much. It doesn't mean the pain of infertility is open to debate. Some donor offspring won't mind that they don't know their genetic family and never have. Fine. But some do, and some are left tortured for the rest of their lives, and there's no accountability for that. They just make another batch in 2005. That's it. Thank you. Next speaker is uh, Eric Blythe, who is Emeritus Professor of Social Work at the University of Huddersfield. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank Sarah for inviting me for this evening's um, uh, presentation. In relation to the, the title of this evening, I would just briefly say I was very much involved since before 1991 up until 2005 with some other... with the group... well... A, far, a rather amorphous group of other people that included um, parents of donor-conceived um, children and adults and donor-conceived adults themselves, social workers, adoption workers, and uh, 
a variety of other people as well, who from the very beginning of the Human Fertilisation Embryology Act in 1991 attempted to change the law on donor anonymity. It was a 16-year battle, and as Joe Rose alluded to, I mean, her court case was very instrumental in sort of kicking off the debate um, in the UK um, about the rights of donor-conceived people to information about their genetic origins. So I was very proud to be sort of part of that campaign. Um, I thought that was the right decision then, and I still think it's the right decision now. Um, but for me, and for many other people, it was simply the first of a number of steps that could be taken to improve the rights and interests of donor-conceived people. And I still think there are you know, other steps that can be taken. I've been asked to talk this evening specifically about the res retrospective removal of donor anonymity. As a lot of you will know, the 1991 Human Fertilisation Embryology Act and its uh, revisions in 2005 created different categories of donor-conceived people who possess different rights to information depending upon the date of the donation that led to their conception, as Charles uh, uh, alluded to in the introduction. From information that I gathered from the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, between 1991 and 2004, around 21,000 infants were born following donor conception in the UK. Round about another 8,000 were born during 2005. And as Charles said at the very beginning, from April 2005, people who were born as a result of donor conception uh, amongst the rights that they had was to the identity of their donor. For the group of people born between 1991 and 2004, records about their conception, records about their donors, records about themselves, records about their parents are actually kept by the HFEA. But amongst the information that is available to donor-conceived people born during this time, the one thing that they cannot access, unless they're fortunate to have been the offspring of the 151 donors who, have, who donated during that period who agreed to the removal of their anonymity, they are not entitled to learn the identity of their donors. So we have a, a large group of people born since 1991 where the records exist, but they are prevented by law from having access to that. In addition, there are an unknown number of donor-conceived people who were born before 1991 um, as a re result of donor conception, where no records may exist at all, they may never have been kept in the first place, or they may have been kept and then destroyed or lost, and they also have no right to learn of their donor's identity. The central question for me, and I it's really alluding to what Melanie Johnson said at that, uh, for me, that very welcome speech that she gave at the HFEA conference in 2004, is this. If it's considered right that donor-conceived people born after 2005 should be able to learn their donor's identity, why should that right not be extended to all donor-conceived people? I think I would put in parenthesis there, where humanly possible, it seems to me to be almost taken for granted that if the records don't exist for and for a lot of people born from donor conception before 1991, then clearly that is going to be an impossibility. If the records don't exist, 
Actually, I shouldn't say that. It's an impossibility because I know of some, some donor-conceived people who were born before 1991 as a result of donor conception who actually found out who their, who their donor was, largely by going on the internet, using DNA, and some research I did some years ago actually um, investigated the experiences of a small group of people who had done just that. Um, but this was something that they were able to do without access to any official records whatsoever. Now, the traditional response to that question is this. Donors who donated prior to 2005 consented to do so only on the basis that their anonymity would be kept. And therefore, retrospective disclosure of their identity without their express consent would be an unreasonable breach of their privacy. And so, consequently, donors' rights should trump those of the donor-conceived person. And that's the status quo here at the moment. That's really a, just an assumption, um, an argument that is largely accepted, never really been discussed in this country, never absolutely been tested. For me, there is no inherent reason why these potentially conflicting rights should be prioritised in this way, and why all donor-conceived people are not treated equally as far as is humanly possible. And I just want to come back to the qualification I made here about potentially conflicting rights, because again, in the debate, it's very often assumed that there is an inherent conflict of interest between donors who donated anonymously and donor-conceived people. Now, as we know, certainly from what, what Juliet presented um, uh, earlier this evening, that is simply not the case. We know that there are 150 donors who actually were recruited and were used as anonymous donors who have agreed to remove their, their anonymity, and that's in the context of where there hasn't been really any proactive approach by the government or by the HFEA to actually advertise the fact that donors who donated anonymously can actually withdraw their, their anonymity. And I was also interested to see in Juliet's slide that a good number of donors, I think again it was 151, had actually applied to the HFEA register for information. So that just shows that donors are interested in the outcome of their donation, which again is contrary to what used to be thought to be the case many years ago, that donors donated, then they happily went on their way and never ever thought about it again. So there's the ethical issue about possible conflicting of rights and how we resolve those. There are also considerable resource implications if we move down this route because we do need to ensure that all those affected, donors, their families, donor-conceived people and their families, are adequately supported and receive adequate information about any change in policy that would ensue. Now, actually, this is not such a radical proposal. I haven't come here um, saying something that is so totally um, off the wall, because in the state of Victoria in Australia, this very measure is currently being implemented by the government there. Lawmakers in, in Victoria a couple of years ago made a, a recommendation that donor anonymity um, should actually be rescinded retrospectively. Um, the government at the time decided that they weren't going to follow on those recommendations, but more recently the new Labour elected government in, in uh, Victoria has committed itself to implementing this particular provision. So it is actually underway at the moment. And so I don't see there's any inherent reason why other jurisdictions, including the UK, shouldn't follow the lead of Victoria. And that's the end of my speech. Thank you. I'd now like to welcome Vanessa Smith. Uh, Vanessa is Quality Assurance and Patient Coordinator at the London Women's Clinic, Bridge Centre, the London Ed Bank and the London Firm Bank. 
I've been in a very, very lucky position over the last 10 years to be involved in donation, primarily sperm donation, but increasingly egg donation. And so I've seen a lot of changes over this time from the level of the clinics and patients. And I want to share a few things with you um, with regards to how we've managed um, the changes in policy and also how we feel we're going to move forward to ensure that the work that we do is good for donors and for patients and, of course, for the donor-conceived offspring. I remember very, very clearly when we were told of the potential change and like many people working in the field, I was really concerned about the fact that we were already finding it a challenge to recruit donors. And I was very, very concerned that with the change in the law, it would become even more difficult. There was so much negative press about the changes in the law. And as a result, a lot of our donor applications dropped. And consequently, I know other clinics had the same problem. Smaller banks closed. And also, there was less donor availability for patients and longer waiting lists. As a result of this, as Juliet mentioned, many patients decided they wanted to search for donors elsewhere. And we definitely, our clinic, despite having a thriving sperm bank, noticed that we were getting more and more imported donors. What actually, what the reality was for us was we, it gave us an opportunity to look at the donors we were recruiting and how this impacted on patients. Perhaps at that time we weren't looking enough at the donor-conceived offspring, but because the law changed, it made a, a change of focus for us. Previously, we were concerned about successful outcomes, the babies that were arriving. Perhaps we weren't thinking enough about the long-term, the long-term implications for these children. However, the law allowed us to focus more on the welfare of the child because, of course, there was long-term implications for the donors when they were donating as well. Previously, we were able to give only minimal information for donor-conceived children. I've had quite a lot of experience in the last couple of years of... Um, donor-conceived individuals contacting me, finding out that they've been conceived through donation by mistake, um, clearing out boxes of their parents to find random health um, paperwork. It's been really, really difficult for these people. If they've been in touch, obviously we're offering counselling and things, but ultimately what they've been wanting from me and from the clinic is more information about the donors they used that, that we used to create them 30 years ago. And more often than not, all I can tell them is that their donor was a certain height and a certain eye colour. There's even documented evidence in the, in the notes that we do have that in many cases are scant to say that don't worry about not telling your child that you were conceived, they were conceived through donor insemination, for example. Of course, today that's not the case. We encourage patients to tell their children about the use of donor conception, be that for egg or sperm donors. And as a result of this, we do have to focus very, very carefully and very clearly on the donors that do come forward Previously, perhaps donation was an easier thing to do, a short-term commitment. You know, everyone jokes about young men, students, donating for beer money. Obviously, that's not the case any longer. We try to make sure that all the donors that come forward are prepared for a lifelong commitment to what they've done. And as a result, what we do find is we get a different type of donors. We tend to have more young professionals who have thought through the process, many of whom have already got their own families, perhaps that's their reason to donate because they see what joy they get from their own children. And of course, although expenses are paid, the majority of our donors are not really that interested in the payment process. I remember when we were talking a lot with the HFE about payments, there was this whole exchange of receipts and things when the donors came to donate. It's really nice not to have to do that now. Now, our, our, our experience at the clinic... Um, 
what we needed to do to ensure that we could maintain the number of donors coming through is we needed to think very, very carefully about how we talk to donors, about their experience. You know, so much time is spent talking about the patient experience, but what we wanted to do was look at the donor experience. We wanted to make sure that we recruited donors that we would be happy and proud of, that when the children, later on, when they were at the right age, wanted to find out more information, they would feel confident about the man or woman they would potentially be able to meet. For that reason, we've spent about five years looking at the process. We've got dedicated teams that work really, really carefully, very, gaining experience all the time about how best we can look after these donors and subsequently how best we can provide suitable samples for our patients. And also, in the long term, when, when donor-conceived um, individuals want to find their donors, they'll meet people that have done the donations for the long-time cause. In 2010, we set up the London Sperm Bank, exactly looking at the way we could help and provide sperm for other patients. We've had 30,000 responses to the London Sperm Bank and London Egg Bank Bank marketing campaigns. They have been very targeted. We've been very lucky that we've got a very experienced team who are looking at the best ways that we can find people that are perhaps suitable for donation and that our patients will feel confident using. As a result, we've been able to recruit 1,000 donors over the last five years. Of course, the majority of those are sperm donors, but increasingly we've been able to use the experience we've gained with the sperm donation side to encourage people to come forward for egg donation. Again, I want to really, really clearly state that these donors that we recruit are walked through the process very carefully. They're able to decide they don't want to take part in donation at any point. And we offer them counselling throughout the whole process. You know, some donors do decide they don't want to continue with the process, even to the point where it comes to the point where a patient's actually selected them for their treatment. They're in a position when they can say no. We want to make sure that the donors that do finish the programme are the right donors for the patients. So I can say that despite my misgivings at the beginning of the, the change in the law, I can say that, yes, I feel really, really confident that changing the law is helping everyone. It's helping us bring good donors. It's helping us treat patients with the right samples. And also, I hope that it's providing a, a good resource for donor-conceived children later on when they decide that perhaps they want to find out how they were created. invite our final speaker now, uh, Susan Golombok, who's a Professor of uh, Family Research and Director of the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge. I've been asked to talk about some of the research we've been carrying out um, over, the, over recent years and, and perhaps not so recent years um, at the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge. So I'm going to focus on three questions. Firstly, how has disclosure of donor conception in the UK changed over the past 30 years? How do children who are told of their donor conception in early childhood feel about being donor conceived? And has the removal of donor anonymity resulted in higher rates of disclosure? Um, so I'm really going to address these questions from the point of view of empirical research. So the first study to be carried out, first longitudinal study, was based on 111 families with a donor insemination child who had been born in the mid-1980s 
in either the UK, Spain, Italy, and the Netherlands. So this was a European study. And the families were assessed um, in all four countries when the children were aged 6 and 12, and then in the UK only at age 18. What we found was, at age 6, not one set of parents in our representative sample had disclosed donor conception to their child. By age 10, less than 10% of parents had disclosed and in the UK sample, by age 18, no further sets of parents had disclosed. So in the early days, this was perhaps surprising even then that um, the numbers were quite so low. Obviously things change, attitudes changed, practices changed, and so we began another study 15 years later because one of our questions was how do children feel about finding out their donor conceived. We began this study at the millennium so all of the children were born in the year 2000 and we recruited through working with a number of clinics 50 families with a child born through donor insemination and 51 egg donation families. We interviewed the parents when the children were 1, 2, 3, 7, 10 and 14. And we have also interviewed the children who are aware of their donor conception when they were 7, 10 and most recently at 14 years old. Firstly, we found that intentions to tell didn't always translate into practice. So at age one... 56% of egg donation parents and 46% of donor inseminations plan to disclose donor conception to their child. But by age seven, which is a key age, because by this age most adopted children are aware of their adoption, so by age seven um, of these children, only 39% of the egg donation parents and 29% of the donor insemination parents had told the children about their donor conception. There did seem to be, though, um, some change over the years, so post age seven. So our most recent data, age 14, we find that 67% of egg donation parents and 41% of donor insemination parents have disclosed (laughs) to their children. But one very striking finding is that although parents said, yes, they have told their children, when we pursued this um, in a little more depth, we found that actually in some cases they had told the children about having IVF um, or some help to conceive, but not about the egg or sperm donation. So with families where parents have been open with the children, we have been able to ask parents how the children respond to this information. And this is, I mean, there, there is a considerable body of research, or a lot is known from um, reports of donor-conceived people, about finding out later in life about donor conception. But this study allowed us to actually um, investigate families where children had been told when they were young. And the parents told us that when they first began to talk to their children about this, their children were either not very interested at all or were curious about their conception and about their donor. But in spite of parents' worries about telling their children, and parents do have considerable worries about about this, 
They reported that not a single child responded to disclosure in a negative way and not one set of parents in our study regretted having disclosed. But interestingly, just because parents say they've disclosed doesn't mean that the children actually understand what they've been told. And I'd just like to give you with a few quotes from the children we've spoken to. So at age seven, when adopted children are usually able to talk quite coherently about their birth story, it was a bit different with donor conception. So just a couple of examples. This child said, a donor egg, I would have had another mummy if my mummy didn't buy me off her. Oh, they got a big needle and put it in, and that was me. I was in the needle, I've been in a needle. And another child said, my mum needed help by a hospital. So she needed help from the hospital in the first year she knew me. Um, they cut my mum open. They decided they got three eggs out. So they put names on the eggs, and that happened. So clearly, um, a little bit of a confusion at that age. But by age 10, children did have a much clearer understanding. So this um, egg donation child said, she, my mum, had the eggs put into her, and then my dad's sperm mixed it up, and then I got created. And then she said, like, about all the particles and stuff that, like, run around and make stuff. <laughs> and this um, child born through sperm donation said, well, my dad couldn't really make the seed, so he had a seed from a special man who gave one up. So how do children feel about being donor-conceived? Generally, the children we spoke to felt quite fine about it. So this 10-year-old said, I'm fine. I don't feel any differently. I'm just carrying on with my life. I don't really think about it much because there's much more like special on my mind, like cooler things. So I don't really care about it much. And then um, this other 10-year-old conceived using egg donation said, I'm all right, just happy I've got my mum and dad, really. But one striking finding was that although children generally seem to be fine within their family talking about donor conception, they were quite hesitant to talk to friends. And most of the children said they didn't discuss this with their friends. So this 10-year-old girl said, that's the only secret I haven't told any of my friends because I don't really want anyone to know. So clearly there still is a stigma around this and it is difficult for children to talk to others. Now, most recently we've been looking at the data from age 14 and still at age 14 responses seem to range from either being not very interested to being very curious about the donor and the donor's characteristics. One finding that I think is a very interesting one, given that most parents' concern about disclosure is that they, in, in the case of donor insemination, that the children will reject the father, perhaps not love the father as much, is that actually this didn't seem to be the case in practice. I'll just end with these two quotes. One child said, I don't really think about it, to be honest. I think of my dad as my dad. And secondly, I was quite surprised when my mum told me. But then I thought, hang on, my dad's not my physical dad, but he is like, he's the one who has looked after me over the years and he has like comforted me, played with me and brought me up. I don't really think about who the donor is. I think more that my dad's my dad because he's looked after me and that's all that really matters. I'm just going to leave one slide up of data that we've collected 
following removal of donor anonymity, children born then, showing that still um, many children are not being told. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, now for uh, the Q&A. Um, I'd be really interested to know what plans you have to conduct large-scale research no. I mean, I, agree. I don't think anybody has used that phrase this evening, but... Uh, oh, did you? Oh, right, OK, fine, there you go. <laughs> Any other, any other questions? Um, I think, uh, yes, Joe, you raised your hand. I've been doing research for 30 years, and always the headlines have been the kids are fighting. My court case found that our human rights were being engaged and most likely violated. The ethics of experimenting on a population who are unformed and do not give consent to both the experiment, my heart pounds with anger about that. Professor Gollenborg, can I ask you to, to, to respond yes. to those points? I believe very heartily in the importance of good empirical research. You may want to criticise what I've been doing, but I believe very strongly in that because there is so much assumption and myth and prejudice in this field that I believe very strongly that it is important to have good empirical data to actually inform this debate, because all we have, if we don't have that, are a lot of strong opinions, and there's lots of prejudice, and there's lots of bias, and whatever else people think, that's absolutely fine. I don't care whether people, I don't give opinions on this because it's not my role. I don't care what people think of these issues. I'm perfectly happy for any opinion to be expressed. All I'm saying is that it's really important to have good data to inform these discussions. And uh, the lady there. Um, hi, my name is Laura. Um, I'm in DCR as well. I'm going to be quite a lot of us here, which is very unusual as may have come up already. Um, I, yeah, it's time for reflection on what Joe is saying. Um, I, I find it very moving. I'm quite readily asked to speak about these things. and. Um, I always feel that I'm just one person and there are a million people and um, I really, I actually quite often say no because I feel under a huge amount of pressure, you know, to be on Sky TV representing a vast number of people who quite often are not widely known and discussed, that's a huge amount of pressure and actually even though I feel relatively confident in my opinions, I don't feel confident that I'm a so-called representative of a group of people who actually we don't all hang out every day, we don't all know each other. So it's really interesting for me, I feel, because I do think these things should be talked about more, it's, I feel like I have a duty to listen to other day conceived people. Because I am actually one of the people you were talking about, he's completely fine about it. I was born in 1983, so I was one of the group that you were talking about who uh, the information exists, but I don't have it. I've never been massively interested in it for me. Um, I reflect lots of the people that you were talking about in your research who say the dad and my dad and husband brought me up. And I'm pretty happy about that, but I do feel like I have a duty to, we have a duty to reflect, to 
look at making policy that reflects a ver the very broad spectrum of people that exist who we don't conceive. And we all have different personalities, we also have very different family circumstances, and I believe that that impacts very strongly on how we react to being don't conceive. And I think so little has been done on this that those things have to be looked at very, very closely. How, for example, people who look obviously physically different from their parents to bring them up, how that impacts on how they feel about it. That's one of the things I've noted, but I still feel like I've barely met anyone else who I can really draw from on this. And um, so my main question was to the HFPA, what work is being done? And I'm not trying to uh, say this in an aggressive way, but I'm interested in what is out there, what can be done, and how we can move forward in bringing about a larger number of donor conceived people in, in rooms together, being analysed, being talked to. I've been involved in some of this, but, but the last thing I was involved in, there were three of us in a room. I was at the donor, a donation strategy group uh, last year, I think, and I was the only donor conceived person there. I was brought in at the last minute, and there were maybe 50 to 100 people. I was, actually, I was quite appalled that lots of the um, I've been involved in the conception network for many years now. I thought I was in favour of the views that were around, but the predominant views of the parents I felt didn't represent the views of donor conceived people. And even though they were all very nice, very well meaning people, I, it really made me feel like I had to get further involved in the discussion. Anyway, so Who'd like to uh, respond to either of those questions? There is so much pressure. Susan Goldbox, who's been saying for 20 years, will fly regardless of the human experimentation issue, the human rights issue and the lack of medical history and the lying issue. There's so much pressure on us to be grateful and wanted to be alive. There's so much pressure to shut up and make everybody else feel better. Can I ask uh, Juliet to respond? Yes, um, thanks for your question. Um, I was really struck by what you said about representation um, and how you approach the issue of feeling whether or not we're speaking on behalf of donors in the future. I think, uh, and that touched on the, the, the point that uh, Jo made in her opening comments that I wanted to respond to. Um, for, a, for a regulator like the HFBA, with a board of 12 people, we're always trying to balance that membership so that we can try and get as broad an expertise and experience as we can. That's the, um, but it's it's not that that's not the place to look for um, an indication of how balanced how an organisation develops its policy or service necessarily. Um, we we aren't dominated by the IVF industry. We're not allowed to by statute. We have twelve members on our board, and four of them are professional members. Two of whom at the moment work in IVF and two of whom in, work in genetics. We're back to the third who works in IVF. We have a lay chair, we have a lay deputy chair, we have to have a majority of non-industry people. And any conflicts of interest are identified and managed at every decision-making stage. So I wouldn't want people to think that there's some dodgy governance going on because there isn't. Um, I think the way that we go about making policy and designing services is, as you hinted at, by um, talking to people who have different experiences of um, the fertility process, whether that's donors or donor conceived people. And it's true that we found it quite hard to get to donor conceived people and we should talk to more of them. I think that small numbers um, have run the risk of not getting a broad um, 
um, range of views on something, but when you're developing something like an information service, surprisingly small numbers of people can you give, give you very rich information about you design them. So I feel confident <coughs> that we've got um, the right information and input from delegacy people on that side of things. Um, but I think that the way uh, we need to develop things, I think, as an organisation, is to um, extend ourselves out more in the way that we have done much more in the last 10 years compared to 10 years ago when I first joined the HPP. So it's not perfect, but I don't think that we are dominated by the views of parents or, or the industry. Uh, I think we have a good balance of views. Strategy group. There were there were many many groups of people talking about different things. Yeah. And so I was the only donor person. There were maybe five or six different groups. So only one group had any donor people in. Yeah. Within the group I was in, we were talking about pen portraits. Firstly, I'm a generation behind that, in that that's not even relevant to me. I, I find it harder to put myself in that position. Yeah. And by myself, I was trying to rack my brains on the spot immediately if someone who donated 50% of my donor information could summarise their entire personality on one page yeah. and how would I want Absolutely. to do it. Absolutely. We weren't asking you to approve a particular publication. We were asking you to input to something. Yeah, but and to give meaningful input in that situation when there's only one of me, I and I was That's right, I totally agree, but that wasn't the only method we used. We used lots of different methods to get views about things. Okay. So I wouldn't want you to feel like you were you were responsible for um, representing the views of delegacy people. I don't think that's right. If it felt like that, then I'm sorry. Right. No, I, I mean I'm not complaining about how I feel, I just I just didn't get the sense that there were many other Okay, I'm going to be a bit strict about moving the debate on because I'm sure there are lots of questions. And there was your point about genetic testing. We do actually have a lot of data about the people who um, were conceived prior to 
that don't even conceive they've taken a genetic ancestry test. Uh, how do we deal with that? Yes. Anybody? Would anybody like to? Response from anyone? Yes, Eric. Okay, well, I've had an answer to this. My understanding is that um, what the UK donors would have provided um, support and capital to people in that I just want to say um, one of the things I'm keen that we pick up on um, out of some of the discussions so far is that as we've heard not all parents are telling their children that they are donor conceived and if children don't know they're donor conceived then they don't know the information to enable them to make a choice about whether to access that information so I think there's a question in my mind about what more can be done than is being done already to encourage uh, disclosure on the part of, of parents Hi, my name's Stuart, I'm a donor from New Zealand, I happen to be in the UK which is where I'm meeting um, and in New Zealand the practice was to donate non-anonymously from about 1990, so that's been a practice for generations. So obviously you have adults um, who are now contacting their donors, and I have a contact for one of my um, donor offspring, I have six. Um, my question really is on Eric's point. Uh, while I'm very much in favour, obviously, of donors being non-anonymous, I'm not in favour of uh, retrospectively uh, revealing um, people's um, uh, identity when a promise has been made to that person. I think there is a lot better way of doing that and that is by a uh, public campaign of encouraging people to come forward. It's clear from the evidence that people who donated without thinking about it up to 20 see it very differently when they get to 50 or so, often in families of their own. And the other advantage of a public campaign would be to raise general awareness of the surrounding issues. Then the, the Nuthill Council on Bioethics looked at this a couple of years ago, didn't they, and, and concluded very similarly to you that it would be better to encourage people to come forward. No, oh, sorry, Vanessa, yes, you've got a point. I'd like to just sort of pick up any further comments on the issue of pre-2005 donors and uh, retrospective uh, notification. Lady over there in the middle. Hello, my name is Bella Woodman and my husband and I have a donor-conceived Changes her mind about 
wanting to know more and whether she would feel frustrated about it. But the big issue here is that this programme, um, sorry, this evening, has been essentially about um, 10 years since the lifting of anonymity, which everybody says um, from the speak speakers is, is a good thing. And you're all um, you know, patting yourselves on the back and saying, um, very successful. I think there's a huge way that you have to, to go forward still here. And the biggest problem is that uh, from your statistics that you show um, on the Venice Living uh, Register, there are very, very few people on these registers. How many don't conceive children are there out there that haven't been told? Right. You have you have very few who are interested, who have been tell, told well, and you'll have lots of children who have never been told. And the biggest issue here is that the clinics must insist that parents tell their children, because unless you do that, you are walking into a minefield. I'd like to thank um, Dr. Rose for her very eloquent account of the interests of the child, which has systematically been ignored for so many years. It's a very powerful account that she's given us of the discrimination and the deception that attends the whole industry. Um, what I'd like to ask her is her experience and, and uh, her thoughts on the question of three-parent children and also children born of early conception who have hundreds and hundreds of siblings. Absolutely brilliant question. I think it's like a real-life Truman Show, but with much bigger hearts that just being watched. That this is why I'm doing this. If it was just me and my family, I'd put more harm by speaking and not speaking. I shut up. But it's because the d divorce between the best interest of the child in the rest of society and reproductive <coughs> technology is so large, and you can do anything to a child in reproductive technology because you don't have to learn from any other research at all. But that's why I'm here, that's why I haven't, I've spent 20 years for that exact reason, the snowboarding in terms of all the rest, whether it's surrogacy, the HFPA, there's no donor offspring now. So if we can hold it just for a moment, because I really would like to get further comment on the issue of the pre-2005 donors and the arguments about whether something should be done to ensure retrospective uh, removal of anonymity. I'm sorry, I simply can't ask donors who go willingly on, on the basis that they would remain anonymous should be pressured into now having to change um, their views on how, how, it was, how it was done originally. I think that's very unfair. People can find out anyway. Recently, you've got a child, as I have, with a, disease, a, can, a cancer that's genetically linked. And then you say that genes don't matter. Are you serious? Honestly, genes matter a huge amount. I'm not denying the love of parents for their children who brought their children up and tried to do their best. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying that genes matter hugely, and genes, as I said over here, who's got professional interest has demonstrated, genes will come out sooner or later with the technology that there is available now. I think one of the challenges that we face at the moment is that many people don't think about talking to their children until their child is slightly older, at least a toddler, perhaps three, perhaps five, seven, even older. Yet what we know, what best practice tells us, is that we need to be talking to our children about this from the minute they are born. 
In fact, not to three months is the ideal place to start, when you're holding your baby, changing it, feeding it. That's the time to cuddle your child and begin to explain to them how they came to be, and so that you can practice what you're saying and get used to telling them and talking to them about it right from the word go. But we aren't educating our parents on this at the moment. We aren't helping people to be prepared to start doing this at that age. And so what I would recommend, and what I like to see us consider, is educating couples and women during pregnancy. It's a time of excitement, a time of expectation, and a time when people are already slotting in lots of different appointments in their diary. Perhaps they even have some maternity leave at the end to make that available. And, I, and employers perhaps would be more understanding if they asked some time off for this purpose. I would like to us to consider educating people on the importance of talking and telling and giving them some tools on how to go about it before their baby is born. The song was used in this podcast, and it was quoted by Joe Rose at the event, is Novum by Kevin Staunch. It was written as part of his search for his biological father, who was a sperm donor in 1990 in Essen, Germany.